0: Hello everyone and welcome to this webinar. I'm Francis Seeley and I'm from a group called Enfield Climate Action Forum, or NCAF for short, which is a network of civil society organisations in Enfield, in a local area, trying to address the issue of climate change and to make us a more sustainable borough. And we've got a group of young people that we call NCAF Youth. And they've been doing some wonderful interviews of all of our MPs and other people as well, which have been really, uh, really profound in a way, because they've done a lot of research and and they don't take hostages. They're very good at asking questions. And we've got two of them here today, Olivia Eakin and Anna uh, Rubiego, and they will introduce themselves and then they will start the interview. I will disappear while they're doing the interview and come back at the end. So Alan, thank you for joining us. That's really great, I'm really pleased you could do it. And I'm gonna hand over to Olivia to start it now.
1: Hi, um, hi Alan, um, I'm Olivia, I'm 17 years old and I'm also part of NCAF Youth. Um, so I'm very passionate about the environment um, and would like to find out more about your views on the environment today. Um, and your role as the Shadow Minister for Energy and the Green New Deal. So I'll pass it over to Anna to introduce herself.
2: Hello, Alan, I'm Anna, I'm also 17. I'm part of NCAF Youth, and we're very excited to know more about your ideas on climate change.
3: Right, well, I, um, it's a lot to say under those circumstances. I, I, I wonder where we um, where we start. My uh, role at the moment in Parliament is I'm Shadow Minister for Energy and uh, the Green New Deal, uh, which is uh, all about particularly uh, the the role of uh, energy use, production management uh, in a net zero situation. And so the the starting point of uh, what concerns me, uh, is how our energy policy and all we do about energy has to be set into that framework of what progress we have to make towards net zero emissions uh, over the next period and i think uh, we'll uh, i think everybody will will know that we've we've moved from uh, as far as climate ambition is concerned from uh, a target of uh, 80% Uh, uh, reduction in uh, greenhouse gases by 2050 uh, to a new uh, target, which I was very much involved in um, getting through Parliament, uh, of uh, net zero, 100% 100 reduction in CO2 emissions net by 2050. I personally think that we need to get to that target by substantially uh, sooner than 2050, but that's, that's the position we now have Uh, nationally in Parliament and what that means is that you've got to design all your policies with that goal in mind and you've got to ask yourself the first question does the policy move towards that net zero target or does it move away from it and if it is moving away from it you don't do it it's as simple as that and when you uh, as it were, impose that uh, blueprint or greenprint, you might say, on on energy policy. Then su- some things are very clear. Uh, firstly, uh, you you cannot uh, countenance the idea that we run with fossil fuel um, use and production uh, for very much longer at all, and that our energy uh, supply, particularly our electricity supply, uh, needs to be provided pretty much completely by renewable sources, probably by 2030 at the latest. So we need to completely decarbonize our uh, electricity and energy sources. And secondly, the other part of energy, which is heat uh, some people think that energy is all about electricity but it's not it's about a whole lot of other things only about 20 percent um, of our energy overall is about uh, electricity uh a lot of it is about uh, how we heat our homes how we how we cook and of course we heat our homes uh, and that's responsible for um a, a very large chunk of uh, of, of emissions uh, over the period we heat our homes almost entirely by gas, which of course is a uh, a fossil fuel, um, less carbon intense than coal, but nevertheless very carbon uh, intense. And so what we need to do as far as heat is concerned is decarbonize the way we heat our homes uh, and use methods uh, of getting heat uh, produced in our homes uh, that do not involve uh, unabated gas that maybe involve uh, green gas, uh, electricity, uh, hydrogen quite possibly, uh, and that we actually move beyond the situation we've got at the moment of, by and large, people heating their homes using boilers, using unabated gas. So either we have to have um, Uh, green gas replacing fossil gas uh, in our pipes coming into our homes, or we need to uh, introduce other devices such as heat pumps, uh, district heating schemes and so on for heating our homes over the period in order to get to that net zero uh, outcome. And the other thing I think we we need to be very clear about is that the net zero imperative uh, as far as climate change is concerned is a net zero imperative. So it is not going to be the case that 2040 or 2050, we will actually have no carbon being produced in our, no no carbon emissions being produced in our economy at all. We will certainly have an overhang in many areas of carbon uh, emissions. But what we need to do is understand that we've got to we we have to introduce a number of net negative uh, devices which actually put carbon back in the ground or indeed don't take it out in the first place um, and if you are putting it back into the ground uh, you do that either by uh, carbon capture and storage whereby you're actually capturing the carbon from uh, activities that are going on uh, or and or uh, you use nature's best way of capturing carbon, which is trees. And so one thing I'm particularly uh, keen on doing is uh, ensuring that in order to provide a net negative carbon sink, we have reforested uh this country uh, so that the forest cover, the tree cover, Uh, in this country, goes way up from its present, about 13%, 10% in England, a bit higher because there are rather more trees in Scotland than there are in England. Um, So across the UK as a whole, about 13% forest cover at the moment, that needs to go up to well over 20% in order to provide the carbon sink that uh, forest cover can provide to give us that net negative Uh, contribution to net zero over the period now there are a whole pile of other policies that uh, come in on the back of those two or three I've mentioned particular uh, imperatives Uh, we have uh, when I've mentioned um, getting our uh, power sector um, decarbonised. Uh, that means for example that we've got to make uh, an early and enormous effort on things such as uh, development offshore wind onshore wind solar uh, and other forms of, of, of renewable uh, tidal for example is a, can be a very important uh, element of, of that renewable portfolio but those are policy initiatives that we've got to undertake very very early on in order to get us to the position where they're up and working and running and producing low-carbon power uh, at really by the end of this decade, latest, uh, earlier on in the decade if possible. Yeah, uh, okay. uh, And uh, I mean, there are, uh, as we know, there are um, uh, initiatives now underway to decarbonize our transport fleet. From an energy point of view, that means we've got to provide the, both the infrastructure to um, back up the transformation of our transport fleet uh, as far as cars are concerned i.e charging points and various other things but we've also got to make sure we've got the low carbon power to put into those cars in the first place because there will be an increase in uh, demand for electricity both as a result of that and also decarbonisation of our homes and we will need to get to work uh, on that at the same time now i'm conscious i've gone on much too long
2: oh it's uh, fine yeah
3: setting out out some of those priorities but that's the (laughs) that's how that's how uh, certainly, the the, the opposition's energy party energy policy is framed, and it's a pretty I think it's a pretty clear framework yeah. uh, as far as the future is concerned. Yeah. And the 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 opposite to that, frankly, in terms of where we are with the climate crisis, is just not negotiable. We cannot deviate from that path if we're to get to where we want to go.
1: Yeah. So you've talked a lot about uh, what we need to do and some of the solutions to solving the climate crisis here in the UK. So what does the Labour Party exactly mean by the Green New Deal? Um, what exactly are Labour trying to achieve or hoping to achieve um, with this Green New Deal?
3: Well, the, the Green New Deal and the way that's been um, coined uh, originally and how it comes forward uh, is uh, in many ways uh, moving on from what was the uh, American Uh, New Deal in the 1930s when it was public action and public investment which got, um, under President Roosevelt, got uh, the US out of the enormous uh, recession it was in and the huge uh, unemployment that resulted and the bankruptcies and all the rest of it. And so Green New Deal uh does I think three things it uh, it firstly identifies that the sort of action to get to the green low carbon economy needs to be overall public action it's not it's not something that we can uh, simply say well the combination of the market and new technological inventions is going to get us uh, get us to where we want to go. It's something that's got to be very proactively done in terms of public investment, um, publicly planned uh, arrangements as to how we get to uh, the, the, the sort of outcomes that I've described, as far as particularly our energy economy is concerned, but also that that is done on the basis of social justice, that uh, it, is, it is done on the basis of uh, getting into place new jobs, new industries, uh, which will actually take up from those jobs in industries in the brown uh, energy uh, economy, particularly, uh, which firstly have got no future now, uh, if we are to do what we are going to do. So you know, the, the, uh, we, we've already seen that uh, coal, coal-fired power stations um, are rapidly closing down. Coal will effectively be uh, removed from the energy economy by uh, 2025 um, but there's an enormous uh, amount of employment and skill and uh, supply chains involved in how coal and indeed gas by power stations for example work uh, and the green new part of the green new deal is to ensure a ju- well, what is called a just transition Uh, in moving to a low carbon energy economy that there will be jobs and industries for those people who were in the in the high carbon economy and their skills and their their contributions can be translated to the low carbon economy by putting in place uh, the infrastructure that is going to be necessary for getting us to net zero in such a way that those jobs and skills can be transferred into the new hydrogen economy into offshore wind fabrication, supply chains, all those sort of things, um, which will ensure that we've actually, we've got, we've firstly got a low carbon energy economy that is actually positive. Uh, I mean, one of the uh, criticisms that is often leveled at this whole area of uh, climate change uh, action uh, is it's all gonna be very expensive and uh, it's all going to be um, very miserable for everybody Uh, It's going to cost a lot of money. um, It's going to cost a lot of jobs. Well, one thing the Green New Deal has to demonstrate and will demonstrate is that actually this is about new jobs. It's about new skills. It's about new supply chains. uh, And it's about actually making people's lives much better than they are at the moment uh, across the board. Um, because of what is done on a that planned and publicly invested basis to make sure that the transition to the uh, low uh, carbon economy is a plus and a bonus for all of us, rather than a millstone around our necks.
2: Um, the next question is, the Conservatives have forward a 10 point plan for green industrial revolution and have pledged to go net zero by 2050. Do you think this target is too late? And do you think they are doing enough to tackle climate change? And if not, what more should they do?
3: Um, yes, the target is too late. Um, 2050, uh, as I said, um, originally was uh, the the year by which 80%, uh, there would be 80% uh, emissions reductions in, in the UK. Um, now that's been changed to net zero, but still by 2050. And we know uh, from what is uh, happening with uh, climate uh, change uh, negotiations, the COP26 that's coming up um, at the the end of this year in Glasgow um, will be the occasion on which uh, there's a substantial uh, review of uh, what our climate change ambitions look like and how the various countries, the parties to the COP, can actually introduce their, what are called indicative national contributions, which will add up together to look at what sort of temperature target uh, we're likely to have um, for the future and certainly for 2050. Now, what is being shown at the moment in terms of um, both collective ambition, and individual ambition is we get nowhere near the 1.5 degrees uh, warming target by 2050 that is now regarded as pretty much the the essential point uh, that we've got to reach by 2050 or before. So saying that you've got a a plan which is going to reach our targets by 2050 is certainly going to be too late uh, for uh, global climate action uh, as we're now reading it uh, in, in COP26. And it's also one uh, which in terms of the UK's own uh, activities on climate change uh, is woefully inadequate for the progress that we said we were going to make when we passed the Climate Change Act uh, in 2008. And uh, I think as uh, everyone will also know, uh, the Climate Change Act had within it the idea of five-year carbon budgets, that each five years you'd have a budget for how much, what the emissions of the country would be now that's been a bit inadequate in the past because it hasn't included uh, things such as emissions from, from aircraft and from shipping. But nevertheless, uh, they have, it has each five years, quite rightly, a carbon budget for the country, which is reduced each five years afterwards. So that instead of getting to 2049 and you close everything down, you, you reduce your carbon budgets year by year, decade by decade, so that you're getting on a smooth path uh, down to that 2050 target. And it will, I don't think, surprise yeah. very many people to know that we're way off beam as far as getting to our fourth and fifth carbon budget targets are concerned. So we're not only we're not only would be behind in getting where we need to do at 2050, we're actually behind in terms of our own targets already. So
1: yeah.
3: the, the ambition that the government presently has in terms of the 10 point plan is clearly not adequate to getting us to where we want to go. I, I have to say it's a considerable improvement on some of the things that were before, because at least it addresses most of the areas of concern, but it doesn't do them adequately. And also most importantly, it doesn't provide the indicative funding, the wherewithal, to actually do the things that it says in its own 10 point plan
1: yeah Uh,
3: and unless we've got unless we've got that sort of detail in front of us we can only judge that as a as frankly a pretty thin wish list um which which may have some targets attached to it but no means to actually get to those targets and as we've seen already we aren't getting to the targets at the moment
1: yes exactly um so just because of time-wise I have to move on to the next question. Um, you've been reported saying that the age of incinerators is over, and um, is this the official view of the Labour Party? Um, and does it mean that you'd put a halt to incineration development?
3: Well, the phrase is mine, but the view is is, is, is certainly generally the, the Labour Party's. Um, and uh, that's because uh, as far as, certainly the way that um, waste uh, management has um, evolved and the way that's also gone into uh, energy production and various other things as well, is you've got to start judging waste management also in that net zero frame. You can't let it escape and be a a sideline. It's got to be integrated in the whole thing. And, And what we know from uh, waste management is that in order to get us down to a very low carbon uh, series of outcomes as far as waste and the development of the circular economy and so on are concerned, you've actually got to move w- right up what's called the waste hierarchy uh, in terms of your uh, recycling and um, your reuse, uh, and also how you actually prevent waste from being produced in the first place. So, one thing that should happen as you move forward on, your way, uh, on going up the waste hierarchy is your, uh, for example, in terms of what are called putrescibles, you're actually putting them in anaerobic digestion and various other things, so that actually you get a, 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 a low carbon product uh, out of what you're putting in uh, to your ana- anaerobic digesters. Your, your recycling rates are, are going up very substantially You're pulling, for example, you're pulling pretty much all the plastic out of the system and you're recycling and uh, reusing that plastic rather than let it go into the waste stream. You're taking wood and various other construction products out of the waste stream so that what you've got at the end of all that is only a very small amount of residual material, which arguably you've only got the choice of um, either burning it or burying it in landfill. And one of the problems of big incinerators is that they institutionalize a high level of incineration over a long period of time. And that actually works against moving up the waste hierarchy to get all those products out of the waste stream, uh, because in the end, there simply won't be the demand unless you cut out those activities and feed those incinerators uh, at the expense of uh, of your recycling targets and your reuse targets. So, there is no place for large incineration. Not only because it's not it's not going to align itself with waste targets uh, for the future, but also because although it is marginally better than burying stuff uh, in terms of climate change targets, uh, unless you, for example, have carbon capture and storage on the back of it, it still is very, very um, carbon intensive in terms of its uh, in terms of its activity. So you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't be putting new large incinerators on the ground uh, because of those particular problems that it will produce. So
1: leading way on from that, future. sorry, um, so kind of leading on from that, what would you consider to be a solution to incineration? Or, or any alternatives that, sorry, we could consider instead of incinerating our rubbish?
3: Well, I mean, in the particular instance of the Edmonton incinerator, which is what we're talking about here, um, that incinerator has been around for quite a long time and was uh, produced as a as a great solution to getting rid of as it were a lot of waste I mean it covers seven London boroughs I think uh, in terms of its uh, its inputs uh, it was produced as that original big solution which is going to be much better than landfill and well, that is true and that was true sort of uh, at that at that time, it was a better solution than burying everything. But the incinerator has never, uh, as far as I know, uh, captured all the energy coming out of the incinerator, I mean, it does a small amount of electricity production, uh, it hasn't made use of the waste heat, I think there are proposals to make use of that waste heat in the uh, expansion suggestions, but it's actually, as it were, stayed still in time. Um, over the period it's been in operation. And it simply doesn't uh, address the more modern issues uh, of waste management that are are coming up. And, And what that means in terms of modern waste management is indeed, as I've said, that you've actually got to make sure that what it is that goes into waste by and large is coming out of waste on a circular economy basis. And so you've got to start introducing efficient, which we don't have as much as we should have in this country, efficient plants for recycling plastic to make sure that, that not only can it be used as much as possible, but also the different kinds of plastic stay at the level of, of waste uh, recycling that they should do. You, know, you need to introduce uh, substantial scale anaerobic digestion to deal with food waste and um, putrescibles and various other things, which presently quite, quite a lot of just goes into incineration. Now that is that is just not acceptable um, for present waste uh, management. You've actually got to make use of that. And as it happens, uh, anaerobic digestion, uh, for example, can produce green gas which can go into the system and replace uh, the high carbon gas that's going into the system uh, at the moment. So there are a whole range of technologies which we can start introducing, which actually deal with what the requirements of waste management are today, not 25 years ago. And the idea of not only keeping the incinerator as it is, but actually increasing its capacity is a real throwback idea, um, quite frankly. And uh, we've got to be smarter than that in, in terms of our waste management overall. Otherwise we will get ossified in dealing with waste in a way that maybe wasn't a better better idea than landfill a long time ago, but certainly isn't a good idea now.
2: Sure, OK. And the next question is, the expansion of the Edmonton incinerator plans to use combined heat and power to funnel energy from the incinerator into powering homes. Is this a good long-term solution to our waste problem, or are there any environmental problems attached to combined heat and power?
3: Well, com- combined heat and power uh, and district heating is going to be a quite a substantial element of the new low carbon uh, solution to heating our homes in the future. So in various parts of the country, I imagine there will be some homes heated by hydrogen uh, and, and you know, cooking with hydrogen and various other things. There will be uh, a, a large number of homes that will be effectively electrically heated and, and, and powered through heat pumps and various other things. There will also be substantial areas of um, the urban environment that will have joint heating schemes which are potentially very efficient uh, for homes overall and the point about combined heat and power is that the the detail is in the is in the heat network how you get the network round to homes to get the heat out on a on a very substantial basis i mean we in Southampton, which I'm the member of parliament for, we have a very substantial district heating programme, which is geothermally powered. So uh, it it takes the the heat uh, from water aquifers way under the surface, uh, and distributes that round uh, a network of uh, of pipes, and that heats homes and offices and buildings and various other things. So it's very good that you have combined heat and power schemes, but how you power the heat and power power scheme is an important element. And if you just stick a gas engine on it, or indeed you say, we're going to power these homes as a result of incineration. Well, yes, you have captured some of the heat, but you haven't done anything for the carbon content uh, of what's going around. So it's a marginal improvement because it's much more efficient than uh, doing things by individual boilers and various other things, but that's all. And we've got to start moving beyond that. So yes, big tick for combined heat and power, big tick for district heating schemes, but only the third big tick, if those schemes are managed in terms of the heat engines that run them, with proper low carbon inputs to uh, their fueling and their running uh, to get the heat out to the areas.
1: Yes and kind of having said that do you think then there should be a tax for incineration because <coughs> currently there's a tax for landfill but not for incineration so that's just incentivizing uh, councils to kind of use incineration as a way to get rid of our rubbish but What do you think on the lack of incineration tax and do you think it would be good to have one?
3: Yes, it would be. Uh, And indeed, the the landfill levy was originally introduced precisely as you say, um, uh, you've obviously done uh, a a lot of work on this yourself. Um, It was was introduced um, precisely to move municipal waste away from what was the practice at that time. We were one of the, uh, uh, as it were, the, the, the dirty countries of Europe in doing this, uh, of simply taking waste and burying it in huge landfills with all the consequences we've had in methane escape and all the rest of it uh, since then. So it was right that there was a landfill levy to discourage that kind of action and incentivize other action. Uh, so it's right that there should now be uh, a Uh, levy attacks to start incentivizing other actions than incineration, which was just the next thing up and putting us onto those higher parts of the the waste hierarchy, uh, which are going to be the uh, sine qua non of waste management in the future. So we have just got to get away from incineration uh, in the medium long-term and uh, incineration should be reserved for those very small fractions um, of residual waste that can't be dealt with in any other way, and a, an incineration tax would actually make that uh, uh, that movement work, I think a lot better. So, yes, I think it should be introduced.
1: So, our next question, kind of talking about energy now, um, as your brief is in energy, do you see energy generation being decentralised, and if so, what's the role of community energy in a decentralised energy environment?
3: well absolutely um and one of the background features of our energy landscape uh really for the last last 50 years 40 50 years of the last century was actually a centralization uh of energy uh management so getting the national grid into place um, putting power stations alongside the the national grid, um, putting power stations uh, where you had, for example, a good uh, source of coal uh, to power those power stations. So centralizing the whole thing. So you had uh, basically very large supplies in the center of the country, going out uh, all over the place uh, to the local. Now what's happened with the development of renewables is that, of course, renewables don't fit that pattern at all. Um, They they can come either from our own roofs, uh, from local uh, wind uh, production, Uh, even offshore wind will land at various parts of the coast, uh, not in the centre at all. Uh, And we've now got an energy economy which is run on things that are fundamentally decentralised, but actually work on a centralized basis. And that's potentially very inefficient, because you've you've potentially got um, services uh, running up and down the country uh, to balance, uh, rather than actually being able to balance and work uh, on a local basis. So uh, I think a a decentralized energy economy uh, is going to be absolutely uh, essential for getting our renewables our our new form of energy management working as well as it could and what that also means is you get a very substantial additional bonus by uh, ensuring that the production of energy is as much a part of people's lives as the consumption of energy is and so that that may be uh, something that actually causes a, a quite a different view to the use of energy in the first place. After all, for, for the last 50 years, essentially what we've done is we've just turned up and assumed that the energy was going to come into our homes from somewhere. We knew not where, we knew not what climate cost it was. We knew not what the fuel was that was going into it. We just switched the light on, turn the oven on. That was it. Whereas if you've got a situation where just down the road, you've got uh, the local... Um, cooperatively owned or municipally owned uh, community wind farm producing electricity directly for local. Uh, you've got aggregation of solar roofs in urban areas so that you can actually have virtual power stations uh, in those urban areas producing uh, very clean uh, solar power. You've got other forms of, of local uh, energy coming in, uh, such as um, I've mentioned geothermal, um, I've uh, hydro at local level, all those sort of things, all give you a community premium in terms of ownership of the issue, as well as people sitting back and uh, letting the issue wash over them. And I think that's gonna be really important for the future of our energy supplies that actually we own it together. uh, And we are all responsible for our energy solutions. Uh, rather than hoping a few big corporations are going to sort it out for us.
2: I agree. I think everyone is responsible for that. Um, Leading on to my next question. um, What do you think is more important in changing our energy environment? Uh, Change at a personal level or systematic changes through new and clean technology? And also, are you optimistic about the future of climate change and the battle that everyone is in right now? Or are we too close to the tipping point?
3: I'd like to be optimistic. Um, At the moment, I'm I'm feeling that we're although things have changed quite rapidly uh, in terms of, as it were, identifying uh, ways forward. We're still way behind in getting those those ways forward uh, sorted out. And we're way behind um, when we just don't have time to be way behind or the luxury of hanging around while we work out how we can get back on track. Uh, we've we've just got to move far far faster we've just got to put far more resources into into the process and uh, we've got 10 years to do that and if we don't have those uh, infrastructure elements in place on the big side and on the smaller side people using energy in a very different way and being much more conscious of of just how precious um, a commodity energy is going to be and how you've got to use it very sparingly. Uh, You've got to make sure that you're um, you're also set up to use as little energy as possible in terms of uh, your your own homes, insulation and so on. Um, If if we haven't got those two things working together, getting the infrastructure in place and getting people the change in how people use energy at the same point we just won't get anywhere near to our targets and so i'm optimistic that we can do it because this doesn't involve any new technology we we know what the technology is we can we can we can use it it's about the political will to get it done and i'm optimistic that increasingly we will get that political will to get it done i'm pessimistic that um, we've got so little time to do it that if we keep squabbling about this we'll just run out of road and that's my fear um, and that's why we've really got to work very hard over the next very few years uh, and then we can perhaps afford to relax a little and smile a bit more about the future
1: yeah I completely agree I, I mean I think considering we know what we need to do now is definitely the time to implement it and it's kind of scary to see politicians still argue about the same things when right now is the time to actually actually see some climate action so thank you for coming today Alan Um, it was really lovely hearing some of the things that you had to say and really educational and definitely taught us some new things so thank you so much Um, yeah thank you
3: well, thank, thanks very much for inviting me along. I've, uh, 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 talk about my favourite subject, among other things. Yeah. Um, and I hope that it was uh, uh, some help to, to, to some people, but um, perhaps the, the, the overall help can be the way that we, um, we can take some of these thoughts to galvanise us all uh, to move further and faster down the road. And if I've been any help in that, then that's been great.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much, Alan. That was really good interview because you talked about, uh, you know, the the emergency of climate change. You talked about the Green New Deal. You talked about incineration, and you you talked about community energy and so on. And. Those are issues, I think, locally that people are really, really concerned about. And that was really dealt with comprehensively. So thank you for doing it. And thank you, Olivia and Anna, as usual. usual. You asked some great questions, and I think that worked very well. So thank you, all of you. It's been a really, really good, interesting interview. So we'll end this interview now.